We apologise to the listener for the poor quality of this recording. This is due to a fault on the master. Now this evening we come to our second and concluding study upon the little book of Zephaniah. We cannot go over the introduction or the authorship and date or the background of the prophet. You will remember that we ended the last time we were speaking about uh, Zephaniah two weeks ago we ended uh, uh, by making just a few comments um, about the key to the book. Now, this evening, we shall start at that point, the key to the book of Zephaniah. And there are some things which we shall say this evening which were included in those comments. There are some other things we shall not be saying again. As we have already stated, all the dominant notes of the preceding eight minor prophets are found in varying degrees in the book of Zephaniah. It bridges the gap between all the preceding prophets and the last final three before the um, uh, coming of the Lord. Uh, That is, of course, we're only talking about the minor prophets. But Zephaniah is remarkable. in in the sense that he gathers up into his ministry all the um, dominant, the essential notes of the preceding uh, age. In particular, you will note the phrase, the day of the Lord. It is is used seven times uh, in that way. The day of the Lord or the day of the wrath of the Lord. And it is referred to another 11 times in this little book, three chapters. So in all, there are quite a large number of references to the day of the Lord. In fact, Zephaniah speaks of the day of the Lord in a more more universal, totally destructive and sudden terms than any other prophet. The other prophets, of course, particularly Joel, speak about the day of the Lord. But none of them presents it to us as something so sudden, so dramatically sudden, and so totally destructive, as does the prophet Zephaniah. It is not just a few nations that are going to be destroyed, but Zephaniah sounds the note of universal destruction, which only later is to be taken up by the New Testament. A destruction and a devastation that will take into its scope even the sea and the fish and the birds and the animals, every part of life as we know it. In this, um, he goes farther than the other prophets. But the key to the book is not that day. But it is the jealousy of the Lord. Now, this may not be apparent at the beginning, but when you look into it, you discover that it is so. If you look in Zephaniah 1 and verse 18, towards the middle of the verse, you will see, the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. The whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. 
And then in chapter 3 and verse 8, the very last phrase of that verse, For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Here again, then it is clear that the two main sections in this book close on this note, that there is going to be a consuming destruction by the fire of the jealousy of the Lord. And this destruction is going to be absolutely universal. It is not just going to be localized. It is going to be everything. It reminds one of the prophets, Peter, when he spoke uh, about the heavens being on fire and everything melting with fervent heat. The fire of his jealousy. And then if you compare that with one little phrase in chapter 3 and verse 17, again in the middle, more or less in the middle of that verse, he will rest in his love. He will rest in his love. Or, the Hebrew is, he will be silent. He will be hushed. He will be quiet in his love. He will subside and relax in his love. That's the thought. And if you bring the fire of his jealousy on the one side, which spans most of the book, and then this relaxation in his, in his love, this resting in his love, this becoming silent in his love, you've got the key to the book of Zephaniah. It is the jealousy of the Lord. The jealousy of the Lord that lies behind everything. And in a moment, I trust, we shall understand a little bit more about that. This book is remarkable in that it sets forth the jealousy of God's love. First, in the dark, thundery colours of God's anger and judgment. And then, in the radiantly sunny of God's joy and satisfaction. Zephaniah is a quite remarkable little book. Of course, we always say this about nearly every book in the Bible, but Zephaniah is remarkable in that he begins in the deepest and most somber colors and ends in the most bright and glorious colors. There is no book that has this quite such a sudden change and the amazing thing is this, that the thing that produces the dark colors of his anger and wrath is the self-same thing that produces the radiant colors of his joy and satisfaction. And that's, that's the key to the ministry of Zephaniah. It reveals that behind all lies the jealousy of an all-consuming passion. Now, if you were and, and I were to understand a little bit more about what God's Word has to say about the character of God, we should immediately begin to understand the ministry of the prophet Zephaniah. Because, you see, fire has always been connected with the Lord. 
we are told even in the book of Hebrews, or the letter to the Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. And this fire speaks of the love of God. People are afraid of anything that refers to the Lord as fire. But even when he stands in the midst of the seven churches, it says his eyes are as a flame of fire. His feet are burnished by that is blazing. Blazing with a glory. Everything about the Lord is, as it were, full of radiance, full of flame, full of this fire. And you have got to understand that whilst this fire consumes everything, everything that is evil and, and uh, that, that is not acceptable to God, it can only purify and develop what is of God? That's the wonder. The prophet Isaiah once cried out, Who shall dwell in the midst of everlasting burning? And this has often been taken up as, a, as an evangelistic word, you see. Who shall dwell in the midst of everlasting burning? And the, and the answer is no one. But the prophet Isaiah says, goes on to tell us that there is, there are those who can live in the midst of everlasting burning. There are those who can let it walk into the fire and live in the fire. Now you see, when you and I begin to understand that behind all God's activity, behind all the acts of God, there is the jealousy of an all-consuming passion, we shall begin to understand the book of Nephaniah. You see, Listen to this word. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. You know where that comes, don't you? Exodus 20, verse 5. In the very midst of the command. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Now I want you to turn from that well-known reference to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verse 14. Listen to this amazing word of the Lord. Thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. The name of the Lord, one of the names of the Lord is Jealous. He is the God named Jealous. Now, you know, all the titles of the Lord present to us some aspect of the Lord. There is not a title the Lord has taken to himself that is not filled with significance and meaning. And you must understand that this name of the Lord, Jealous, he calls himself Jealous, this is his name, reveals to us something about God. Then again, if you will look at Deuteronomy, and chapter 4, and verse 24, we read this. For the Lord thy God is a devouring fire, a jealous God. The Lord thy God is a devouring fire, a jealous God. And then I want you 
as an explanation of this, and it is in fact the best commentary on the little book of, of Zephaniah, turn to the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. Now listen to what the bridegroom says to the bride. Set me as a seal upon my heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy is cruel, or as hard as sheol or hell. Jealousy, hard or cruel as hell. The flashes thereof are flashes of fire, a very flame of the Lord, or a vehement flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench it. Correct quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, he would, he would utterly be condemned. Now the Lord says that he's a jealous God. But what is this jealousy? What is this jealousy? Now it's a strange thing that as soon as you start talking about this, you can see the reservation that comes upon the faces of many all of you. You cannot mention the word jealousy or jealous, generally speaking, amongst people, without them immediately visualizing that twisted, hateful, poisonous thing that causes so much havoc and so much unhappiness in the world. But this is not the jealousy that is in the Bible. What is the jealousy that we have here? The Oxford Dictionary puts it like this. I don't know whether it will help anyone. But this is what the Oxford Dictionary gives us two of the meanings of the word jealousy. Solicitous for the preservation of. Solicitous for the preservation of. I'm jealous. I'm jealous over such and such a thing. I'm full of, of, a, of a consuming desire that that thing should be preserved. I am jealous for the beauty of the, of the English landscape. I am out for its preservation. I am afraid of its being spoiled. I'm afraid of its being marred. I'm afraid of all those commercial interests that would turn it into grime and soot and smoke. So I'm, I'm jealous for the English landscape, or the English countryside, or again, is another way to put, apprehensive of being displaced in the love of. Apprehensive of being displaced in the love of. I'm jealous about my relationship to so-and-so, afraid that I might be displaced in that person's love by someone else. Another rival. Something else might come in and, as it were, there will come an indifference toward me. Uh, uh, a sort of uh, uh, rival's come. So the Oxford Dictionary says, and it's helpful to a certain extent, but perhaps the most helpful way of understanding this word jealousy in the scripture, and I might just say to this, that if you take this importance and look, you will find that it's a word that's used from beginning to end in the Bible. The Hebrew word means zeal. 
behind humanity, behind the redemption of God, behind the house of God, the church of God, lies this jealousy of an all-consuming passion. When John the Apostle said God is love, he was really simply telling us that God being love was capable For God has not just got love. God doesn't love at times. God is love. That is, He is love itself. And all true love is but a reflection of what God is. So, any true love, whatever shape or form it takes, is but a reflection of God. Because God is love. And because God is love, you can wear it to that other phrase, our God is a consuming fire. Not that there is a consuming fire round about him, but our God is a consuming fire. His love gives rise to his jealousy. And that jealousy is the zeal which motivates all his acts and all his words. Now, I might say that, of course, Really, um, it is the zeal of the Lord's love which has taken hold of us and will never rest, never rest until he has perfected us and brought us to the place he intends us to occupy. Now, listen to me very carefully on this point. I mean by this, that once the Lord has set his love upon a human being and saved that person, he will never rest until that person occupies the place he intends him or her to occupy. And he will go to any length to see that in the end they're born there. If you backslide, you think you've lost the Lord. You think you've got away from the discipline of the Lord. But the Lord will follow you, though you know it not. And in the far country, he will simply wreck everything that you've got in the end. Why? Because he hates you. Because his love has turned to a kind of loathing of you. No. But because he's going to have you in the end. And do you know that the Lord will take away physical life? If by so doing, he can ensure that we occupy, finally, the place he intends us to have. This is the supreme judgment in the New Testament that can come upon us for not discerning the body of the Lord. Why does the Lord do it? To ensure that you and I, in the end, get to the place God intends us to occupy. Therefore, you see, no wonder we should be filled with the fear of the Lord. For it is both a fearful and a marvelous thing. On the one hand, it is marvelous that God should so love us, not just love us in an, I was going to say, in an impassionate way, if you can love in an impassionate way. I think many people have got an idea that God loves in, in an impersonal way, you know, sort of in an awfully charitable way. Rather like the big charitable societies in London, you know, sort of, they're all about some of them, but they, they sort of, we write a little 
get down to the few guineas you know, church people doing a great That kind of a many people got the idea that God's love is like that. Oh you need to mention the word passion and some people sort of shrink. You see. Oh God's not like that. God's not got any passion in God is And there can be times when the jealousy of the Lord will to anger. When he will deal in jealousy, in the jealousy of his love, he will deal and he will deal drastically. So it is both marvelous and it is fearful. We cannot emphasize enough that God's jealousy springs from his love. When that scene, what a comfort it gives. Yes, it is not, it, it gives comfort. 
If you realize that God has such a jealous love for you, it comforts you in the end. You know yourself. You know the forces you're up against. You know your capacity for failure. But oh, what a comfort is to know that the jealousy of the Lord is going to perform it. It's a comfort. If you really are that Jacob, if you really are putting a lot upon spiritual things, it's a great comfort. But, let me say this, if you're putting a lot, like Esau, upon temporal and transient things, then there's no comfort in the Lord's jealousy. It must fill such people with dread. But if like Jacob, it means that in spite of all that you are, one in the end you'll go through your challenge. Earlier or later. And you'll become his And it's not only a comfort, it gives one an overwhelming sense of security. Security. Now, a little child always feels secure in the jealous love of his parents. And when there is no jealous love, the child feels insecure. When that love's impersonal, rather detached, and sort of somehow other deal uh, as if with the other, almost as if they don't belong. The child has no sense of security. But you and I all know what it is to feel secure in the German love of parents. The love that watches, watches us, cares for us all the time. And there's an overwhelming sense of security in the, in the jealousy of God's love. Tremendous sense of security. That while he's going to do it, he's going to get us through. Even if it means taking away every single thing, he's going to, he's going to do it. He's going to get us right. And I think it also gives us a, 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 an utter amazement that he should love us like this. We cannot understand that. Now, as I've said, the love of the Lord is so great. And the jealousy it produces so powerful that the Lord will do anything, he will use anything, he will go to any lengths to finally and completely possess his own. And this is simply the book of Zephaniah. You see, Zephaniah begins with a proclamation of the anger of the Lord. And it's not just to do with his own. This anger of the Lord is directed against the whole universe. And the heart of the matter is the Lord's been displaced. He's been displaced. He's got a rival or rivals. And he speaks about them in the first chapter of Zephaniah. And so he arises. And what is the Lord what is the Lord going to do? What is the jealousy of the Lord going to do? He is going to destroy those persistent and consistently corrupting forces and influences. Now why do you and I fail? Why do we collapse? Because all the time we're coming under the corrupting influences and forces in this world. We've only got to go to our home, only listen to the radio, only watch the television, only read a newspaper, only go out into the street. And you can cut yourself off from all of that and there's still 
a thing up here that shows exodus got films. You see, there we, we live in a poison atmosphere, an atmosphere that is corrupt and evil. And all the time it's out to destroy and pervert. And so the story of God's word is the story of weak men and women, frail humanity, who being redeemed by him, set out by oh how those corrupting forces and influences get them down up to the line. The failures that there are in God's word. And it wasn't the abounding grace of God which covers all failure and covers the sin. There would not be a single sin that would could stand in the presence of the Lord. The greatest of them all, it seems, have failed. Because of these influences. But you see, the jealousy of the Lord's love is one day going to remove those all Those forces that have been consistently corrupted are going to be forever and completely destroyed. It's going to be the fire of his jealousy. And it's not just only going to be um, in a metaphorical way. There's going to be an actual fire in which the whole thing will disintegrate. Out of it, out of that baptism of fire, will come a new heavens and a new earth, wherein will righteousness. That is, the old atmosphere is gone. The old forces and powers have been purged out. And the whole principle and atmosphere is one of righteousness. Wherein dwelleth righteousness. His jealousy, you see, will not allow finally Anything to exist which could corrupt or compromise or alienate us from him. Isn't that wonderful? God so loves his own that in the end he's going to arise to destroy every single force that could ever again alienate his own from him. This is the book of Zephaniah. This is why it speaks about the day of the Lord's wrath when everything is going to be finally and completely consumed. And let us go on. Nor does that jealousy allow his people to go unpunished. It acts to remove those forces that have corrupted and influenced and compromised God's people, but it does not wink at sin in God's own. Now this is a very serious thing. The Lord will not forsake them. He will not destroy them. But he will purge them um, in, in the zeal of his love. Until they are brought back to their first love and their right position. Now this might explain some of your lives. Because as soon as the Lord begins to see the first love declining, he starts to act. His whole passion is to bring you back to your first love and to your right position. But the two things are wedded. If you've left your first love, you've left your right position. The two are wedded. And he will act, and we act all the time to bring us back to that. The church of Ephesus was a perfect church, it seemed, in so many ways. 
But the one thing the Lord had against him was he had left its first love, and the Lord said, because that he would remove its candlestick. He would purge it. He would judge it. He would punish it. Until it was forced back into its first love and into its right position. And this is so with every one of us here in this room. You see, we're up against the name of the Lord. And when you look into this um, book of Zephaniah, you will find a lot of things that... Uh, that seem a little bit, uh, when they come home, things like uh, they turn back from following the Lord, they don't inquire of the Lord, they're settled down on their views, they're indifferent. These are the things you see that, that brought out the jealousy of the Lord's love. And I think we ought to note in this a very wonderful thing, that the Lord either must leave us forsake us, and then destroy us, or remain and judge us. Now, not all of you may be able to understand what I've said, but for some of you, it will open up quite a, an amount of scripture, especially in the New Testament, that we may turn to in a moment. I think we ought in particular to note, anyway, one or two scriptures. In Galatians 6, verse 8, uh, verse 7, be not deceived, brethren. God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If he that soweth unto his own flesh, of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth unto the Spirit, shall of the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, as he, Paul is writing to these dear children of God, he's saying, don't be mocked. Be not mocked, brethren. Don't get away with this idea that you can do anything and get away with it. You can't. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The And unless we have confessed and put under the blood anything that is sinful and evil, we reap what we sow. It's a law. And then if you look again at 1 Peter 4 and verse 17, You've got the same thought here, really, put in a different way. Time is come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begin first at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Hard words. Judgment must begin at the house of God. This is an absolute principle, again, with the law. He doesn't just overlook the sin of his people. His jealousy requires him to deal with it. Now, why? Why? Because all that you and I do only reveals a root. You can shear off the fruit, but if that is left, sooner or later it will corrupt. The Lord acts in his jealousy to rid us altogether in the end, of every spot or blemish or such thing. Isn't that lovely? Every spot or blemish or such thing. And then again in Ecclesiastes 12 and 14, you know that little verse that says that every man's work, whether it be good or evil, will be brought into judgment. And this you can take up with what is in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, the fire will try it, whether it is of God. 
built upon the foundation, but it's wood, hay, or stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones. It's all brought into judgment. That is discrimination to see what it's made of. And in Numbers, um, Numbers 23 and um, 20, 32 and verse 23, you have that well-known little word, be sure your sin will find you out. Whatsoever we sow, we be sure your sin will find you out. It takes many, many years. But if that sin is unconfessed, finally, it will catch you out. Now this is Saul, and if you want to go away and look in Numbers chapter 5, from verse 11 onwards, you will read the law of jealousy. It's a very interesting law. I'm not going to go into it very much this evening, except just to say this, that if a husband suspected that his wife had not been faithful, he took her to the temple, to the priest, and she, before the altar of the Lord, took an oath and drank a certain kind of mixture, water. Now the whole idea was this, that she would either be absolutely vindicated by the altar of the Lord, by God himself, or from that moment she would cease ever to be able to have another child. Now what was the idea behind it's called the law of jealousy. What is the idea? It is this, that if that woman, if that wife has done something wrong, she will be forced to confess it. And then there will be no judgment. But if she has now, she will be absolutely vindicated. Now this, you see, again, is to just the same with us. The, the, the Lord of God's jealousy over us is exactly the same. He will not allow anything that is hidden, that is going on in us. Either it's got to be confessed by us to the Lord, right away under the blood, or finally, in the end, we force the Lord to deal with us. He has to deal with us. Now all this is very serious, really, when we look at it like that. And there is really nothing like the anger of jealousy. It is the jealousy of God's love. But there is also the anger of God's love. And in this we can see that there are two alternatives. And this I think we all must take note of. There are two alternatives. We either deal with ourselves or God deals. That's putting it as the simplest term. We either deal with ourselves or God deals with us. Now this is Zephaniah's message. He says, he later on he says, you would not receive correction. The Lord did everything to try and bring you to correct yourself, but you would not do it. So now the Lord's going to do it. Now this is the principle that is contained in 1 Corinthians 11. And I will just uh, read it to you from verse 29. He that eateth and drinketh, eateth and drinketh judgment unto himself, if he discern not the body. For this cause many among you are weak and sickly, and not a few sleep. That is the dead. 
But if we discerned ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Now have you got it? You see, the Lord stands back and says, really, you deal with yourself. You discriminate. You discern yourself. You know what's wrong. All right. Bring it out into the light with the Lord. Put it under the blood. Come to the Lord and say, Lord, that's sin. Put it away. But if you dither and hide, pretend it's not there, and call it by other names, the Lord will wait, and he will wait, and he will wait, and he will wait. But in the end, because he loves you so much, he will be forced away. Why? Because if he didn't act, you would be condemned with the world. You see, God is just. God is absolutely just. There can be no playing about with his atonement. No playing about with his grace. It is true you and I have been saved by abund in abundant grace. But just because of that, God himself, if you and I will not deal, you and I will not deal with ourselves, not judge ourselves, will not bring these things into the open, into life and put them away, then God will do And this is exactly again what happened with over one man in the pool, delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his body, that his spirit may be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. Well, I told you that this book um, was um, set at the beginning in somber colours, thundery colours of the anger of God's jealousy. Here it is. It is therefore something that we that is that is fearful. We see the jealousy of the Lord perfecting and purifying, separating us from all evil until He. Finally presents us in his presence without spot or blemish or any such thing. In exceeding joy. Have you ever wondered how the Lord's going to present you in exceeding joy? Well, he'll do it. If you and I will not cleanse ourselves, will not put these things aside, in the end he will do it. Even if it means doing something physically. Now the cry of the Lord to, uh, in this, all this, is to seek righteousness and meekness. And that you find in Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 3. That by so doing, we may uh, not need to be judged. Now note this. It is not meekness alone, and it's not righteousness alone. But it is these two things together. Do you remember Psalm 45 and verse 4? He, go, he goes forth with this word, meekness, righteousness. We can't really put it into, into words. Rotherham puts it, meek-tempered righteousness. Others have tried to put it in other ways. We remember when we spoke about it the other Sunday, we spoke about it as lamb-like righteousness. But the idea is meek-righteousness or righteous-meekness. It is, as it were, two sides of one thing. God says to us, seek righteousness, seek meekness. Seek ye the Lord. This is the cry of God. Why? Well, the point is 
that finally that will be the only nature in heaven. The lamb-like nature of Christ. Because when you look at it one and one, and it's the lion of Judah. But you look at it from another angle, it is the lamb of God. The lion that speaks of the righteousness of God. And the lamb that speaks of the meekness. And this is the nature that the Lord looks for in us. And I think also we ought to note the phrase, in the midst. I did mention this the last time. Um, you get it in, in Zephaniah 3 and verse um, 5, and verse 15 and verse 17. And it is also interesting to note that it recurs again twice in verse 11 and in verse 12. He speaks of his being in the midst first. Then he takes, he speaks about taking out certain from the midst. And then he speaks about leaving in the midst another kind of nature or character. And finally he speaks about himself again in the midst, full of joy, and his own full of joy. And really that goes to the root of the matter, because the Lord being in the midst sums up the eternal purpose of God. He's always longed to be in the midst. And in a way, his presence in our midst is the guarantee of survival. It's wonderful because it holds the true answer to human need. We were made for God. We were made for God to be in us and for us to be with God. I can't put it any other way. And we shall only be finally happy and satisfied when we come home to him and he to us. When that wedding takes place, there will be absolute peace and absolute joy. It's also a, 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 a tremendous thing in another way, because just because he is in the midst, nothing unconfessed can go back. You see, it is the jealousy of his love again. He created you and me, for himself. And he knows that constitutionally, temperamentally, we shall never, ever be at rest or know a true and a right self-fulfillment till we come home to him. And in the jealousy of his love, he will do anything to see that in the end we get there. His presence in the midst, then, is tremendous. And I'm sure that's what it means about discerning the body. It doesn't just mean discerning each other as the body. It means discerning the Lord in each one. The presence of the Lord in the So you have to be careful what you say. Be careful what you do. Because you wouldn't say it to the Lord himself. But you might say it about someone in whom the Lord. Perhaps the most wonderful thing of all in this book is the final picture of the complete joy both of the Lord and of Zion and even of the world. I wonder what it means. What does it mean? There's a joy here of the Lord that is almost remarkable, quite remarkable. And there's the joy of his own. And then the whole world 
in that joy and in that blessing. I wonder what it really means. Who are all those who will be given that pure language and will serve the Lord with one consent? We know who Zion is. We know who Jerusalem represents. We know the Lord in the midst. But who are these who are going to be given this pure language and will serve the Lord uh, with one consent and will come together up to the Lord. It reminds us again at the end of the, of the book of Revelation where it speaks of the nations walking in the light of the city. And this, in many ways, is a mystery. I don't doubt whether we shall ever fully understand or be able dogmatically to say what it is until we actually, with our own eyes, see it all taking place and shape. You see, if the anger of God will pulverize and disintegrate this world in fire, as we read about in 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, or in Revelation chapter 6 where it says that every mountain and hill will be moved out of its place. The thunderstorm, which we've all heard in the last few days, is a picture in God's word of, of this very thing, the Lord coming out in anger. Something dramatic, something that shatters everything, that breaks up everything, that stops normal routine. And we are told that in the end, this day of the wrath of the Lord is, is just going to be a pulverizing of everything. The whole thing will go on in fire. If that's the effect of God's anger, what is going to be the effect? You see, you and I don't realize that everything, everything in this world exists in the energy of God. It is but the manifestation of the, of the energy of life of God. That's why we're told that we are debtors to God, even if we're not Christians. Because the bodies we have are just the manifestation of His energy. The air we breathe is just a manifestation of Him. We, we live, we move, we have our breath in Him whether we're the Lord or not. Nothing's outside of him. And when God finally, can you imagine it? When God, who is not an impersonal spirit, but a personality, a person, when God is angry, so the whole thing disintegrates, as it were, dissolves, what will it be when, uh, as Zephaniah says, he's filled with an expressible joy, so that he, he exalts, he shouts aloud, and then he subsides into silence and quietness, and then he sings, he, he joys over us with singing. What will it be like? No wonder it says in, in the Word that everything will be changed, that, the, that, the, uh, um, that everything will speak the praise of God. I can't conceive what it will be like. It is surely inconceivable. But if the anger of God can have such devastating effects, what must the joy and satisfaction of the Lord have? You know, the very fact that humanity is unhappy is a reflection of a need in God. God is not really happy. And it's reflected in humanity. But when finally God comes to his satisfaction, don't you think that will be glory? 
we can't, we can't describe or interpret the word glory. But to me, that's what it means, the word glory. Something inconceivable. Something you and I, who live in a fallen world, just know very little about. Now and again we get a touch of glory. But oh, what will it be like in that day when finally and forever the Lord is full of joy. I'm going to end there this evening and I'll just say this one last thing. We read in God's Word a lot about song of His own. The book of Revelation in particular tells us about the new song that they will sing. And whenever we think of heaven, we think of song. Always. We always think of song. And whenever we think of that song, we think of the innumerable multitude, the myriads upon myriads of the redeemed of the Lord, who will break forth spontaneously into song. Because song is the most adequate expression of joy and uh, of worship. Uh, that that's can be given. We read in the Word of God of His people rejoicing. We read of the angels rejoicing. We read of the creation rejoicing. But it was left to Zephaniah to tell us that God will sing one day. And I think that is the most remarkable picture It would seem almost blasphemous if it wasn't God's own word. That there's coming a day when the Almighty God Himself is going to sing a song. It says He will sing over thee, He will rejoice over thee with joy, He will joy over thee with singing. What will it be like when God breaks forth? I must say that somehow or other I believe that every single thing in the whole universe will be affected by the song of God. Oh, perhaps some will say, oh, but surely God won't actually sing. Well, I don't know. Perhaps we won't actually sing. I don't know. I've always taken it that we're going to sing. Therefore, it seems to me that we can take this also that in a way that perhaps we shan't understand, in a divine way, God is going to break into song. But for this I do, that whether God will actually sing in words or not, it is a picture of absolute joy and absolute satisfaction and absolute not only in us, but in God. God himself will be so overjoyed that he will sing. Won't that be the vindication of these long ages of sin and suffering and turmoil? Won't it be wonderful to be there? 
Oh, you and I have no idea what, what in the end is in store for us. What it will be like. I can only say that at present we have known a God who has known sorrow. And we have known a God who has known suffering in Calvary. And we know a God who's going to show his anger one day. In the final judgment of all that's evil. Won't it be wonderful to know a God who will sing, sing for the joy of his heart? Now, you see, that comes back to this. It is the jealousy of his love that produces the song. If you had been consumed with a passion all your life, and then in the end, the thing that has absorbed you and mastered you and has what captivated you is given to you. It's heaven. If it's exactly what you've always wanted, if it's exactly that for which you planned, if it's exactly that for which you worked, if it's exactly that for which you yearned, you're filled with glory. And now I want to say that that's what it will be like for God himself. What he originally intended, that which seemed to be destroyed, that which went into all this awful complexity of sin. Redeemed, but not only redeemed, restored. And not only restored, but actually realizing the very purpose for which he originally intended. His song will give rise to us. Our song will give rise to his. You see, the end of it all is mutuality. That city, having the glory of God. There's no temple there where you can go and worship or see. There's no actual, fo actual focal point of light. Oh no, God is there. God is the Lamb of the temple. God is the Lamb of the light. And you can't differentiate between that city and God and man. They have all waited together, fused into a unity of love and life and light. You see, I think that's something for which all of us should look forward. Oh, we put so much upon these transient things, so much upon the things that are all going to go into the judgment, that are all going to go up in the fire. What about the things that are beyond? And even if you're putting a lot upon things which you see, the jealousy of the Lord's love for you will see in the end that you're there. Oh, there may not be a lot of the Lord when you're there times. But he'll see that you're there. Even if you're saved, so as by fire, you'll be there. And may I put it this way, although it may sound rather funny, what is there of you will be without spot or flesh? Well, may the Lord just help us, and if we do have another, another evening, we'll look at the outside. Shall we?